taking my wife, Kristen, on dates. It's one of my favorite things. One thing I know will always bless Kristen on a date is being near the water. If Kristen can be near water, she is a happy girl. So I know strategically one thing I want to do at some point in our dates, if possible, if it's not too cold or rainy, which rain is water, but that doesn't count in her book. So it's like, hey, look at the rain, babe. That doesn't count. It's not real water. Real water is the ocean or a river or a lake of some sort. So whether it's going over to the Ponds neighborhood and they have a little uh, uh, lake there and you have a little picnic there or taking our little, uh, it's not a kayak, what's that called? Canoe out on the Ashley River or walking out on the beach or going to Mount Pleasant on the boardwalk and looking at the river there. We love going to water. She is a happy girl around water. I do think God made us to really like water. I think there's two interesting things. I brought this up at different campouts we've done with the guys is, is fire and water are two interesting things that we just like to sit and look at that God's created us for. Like we've sat at campouts before and I'll just bring up like the guys are sitting around just talking. And I'm like, guys, if there's not fire right now, how weird is this? Like it's just guys in the woods in a circle staring at each other. It's like, this is strange. Or how weird is it? Like if, like I see people walking on the ocean, they have no intention of touching the water, but no one just like, people don't just walk in the desert very much. Like if there's no water, it's weird. God has made us to enjoy things about his creation. And he has made us to enjoy the power and mystery of water. In today's passage in Revelation 22, one of the things that's at the very center of the new creation, the restored Eden, is a river. It's a river with a fountainhead coming from the throne of God. Maybe we like water because for all eternity we're going to enjoy the living water, the abundant life we have in Jesus. Let's look at Revelation chapter 22. We're just covering five verses today. And we're going to look at this window or get a window into something that all of Scripture is pointing us toward. It's, all of Scripture has been crying out and longing for and is the restored Eden. Revelation 22, starting at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, <clears throat> the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. <clears throat> they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. In Genesis 2, we see God placing Adam in the Garden of Eden to work the ground. Eve is then formed and the wedding party begins. God and his people together. 
perfect relationship, beautiful creation, everything is life-giving. Can you imagine a world where everything is life-giving? No allergies, no fear of animals attacking or insects stinging, no rashes from poison ivy, no blisters, no ailments, no headaches, no stomach pain, no sleepless nights, no suffering, no struggles. You have a perfect relationship with God. No sin, no anger toward God, no questioning God's motives, no questioning, is God going to strike me down? No shame, no fear. Perfect, full relationship with God. But also perfect relationship with others. So no bitterness, no resentment, no confusion on relationships. Might it be that the greatest command to love God and love others is such a big deal because that's where sin attacks the greatest. Hating God and others, irritation with God and others, broken relationship with God and others. But in Eden, Eden was fully loving and always whole. So your relationship with God would be completely life-giving. Your relationship with others, completely life-giving. That was Eden. Everything was good, right, and perfect. And friends, today's passage doesn't just point us to the past Eden where we would say, man, that would have been great. It points us to a future Eden where everything will be life-giving. We will be completely whole in our relationship with God and others. And this time, the snake Satan has already been banished and defeated. This is our future home, the restored Eden. We will be, point number one, in a life-giving relationship with God. In verse 1 of chapter 22, we find the river of the water of life. This is not just a pretty river, though it says it is bright as crystal. It is a life-giving water source from God's throne. Everything about the river and the restored Eden speaks of restoration, nourishment, and fullness in our relationship with God. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well encounters Jesus and is told that living water is available to her. But Jesus isn't talking about liquid sustenance. He's talking about spiritual fulfillment in Christ alone. A few chapters later in John chapter 7, Jesus says this. It'll be on the screen. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying he is the source of satisfaction that we have always been longing for. A few weeks ago, I was in Florida at a conference and One morning I was working out in the hotel workout room and there was a gentleman, I've never seen this before when I've been in a hotel workout room, there was a guy like checking out all the um, different machines. So he's on this treadmill for a few minutes and he's on this treadmill for a few minutes. And and I was like, this is a weird dude. Like what's he just, and then I found out, oh, he works here and he's just testing out everything to make sure he, like everything's working. So, So I'm on a bike and I start talking to him. His name's Kevin. We start talking like, what do you do? He goes around to hotels and checks out their machines to make sure they work. I was like, that's a cool job. So we're talking all about it. And then we get to talk about 
a little bit deeper stuff. I actually used some of the 411 training we do, my 15-second testimony, um, and then went into the three circles and shared the gospel with him. And when I asked him, uh, let me look at the three circles here. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the three circles, we basically start over here that we live in a world that is broken. We all know we do. We live in that world. But God designed our world, like the one with the heart right there, to be a f- perfect place of worship and love. But we have all run from that perfect place, that circle on the top left, t- to the brokenness, which is called sin. Um, and we all try to fix our sin. We all try to fix our brokenness in some way. Some do it through uh, their finances. If I can just get enough stuff, then I'll fix my brokenness. Some through relationships. If I just get a good relationship with someone else, then I'll fix my brokenness. Some people think if I just earn good points with God, if I'm very religious and my good outweighs my bad at the end of life, then I'll fix my brokenness. But we all know that slingshots us back into the brokenness and just causes more brokenness. So I'm sharing this with Kevin. I'm explaining this to him. And then I talk about the only way to fix brokenness is that Jesus fixes the brokenness. Jesus came down from heaven to earth. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus. He dies on the cross. He raises from the grave and he is king over all. And all who trust in him, you see the little little bright star person that says restored. All who trust in Jesus will be made new and they get in perfect relationship with Jesus. So I'm like drawing this out. I had like a book and I'm using the back cover of my book to, to show Kevin. I'm like, Kevin, where do you think you are here? And he pointed to the brokenness. And he just kind of said, I've felt a void. I felt like not satisfied. <clears throat> and I kind of have to work to get to God. He didn't say it exactly that way, but that was kind of the essence of it. So I said to Kevin, like, what would, what would keep you from turning to Christ and trusting Jesus as your Savior? He said, well, I kind of like working hard to try to get to God. I'm like, really? Tell me about that. And, but he kept getting to the dryness, the emptiness of work. And he told me a whole story about how he was driving over here to help his dad and then driving across the state to do this because he's just trying to do good things, good things, good things to other people and help people, and it's wearing him out. I was like, Kevin, you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. And he basically refused. He refused to trust Jesus because he wants to just keep the cycle of working and, and putting his resume out to like, God, get me into heaven with this resume, with all the things I've done well. But friends, today's passage shows us that Kevin and all of us don't just work our way to God. We don't just earn our way to God. We don't just fix our brokenness through relationships or financial security. No, it's through Jesus and drinking deeply of Jesus at the river of life to be made whole in Jesus, to be satisfied in Jesus, to have life in Jesus, to be found in Jesus. But back to our passage in Revelation 22, it's not the first time the Bible speaks of this river that's in the new heavens, new earth. Actually, as we've talked about a ton in Revelation, you're gonna miss me saying this. We paint with the painter's palette of what? The Old Testament. So in Ezekiel chapter 47, the prophet Ezekiel's at the future temple where the angel's taking him around with a measuring rod. We talked about, a lot about the measuring rod last week. In Ezekiel 47, the angel takes Ezekiel after he kind of comes out of the temple. He takes him to what's flowing out of the temple? A river. 
There's water, and he starts talking about the depth of the water, and he just goes into lots of details about it. He walks like a thousand whatever, uh, I don't know what the measuring system was, but a thousand, and it's like that water's to his ankles. Then he walks further, and the water's to his knees, and he walks further, and the water's to his waist, and he walks further. And he's like, you have to swim in this river that's gushing from the new temple. And the emphasis on, is on the depth, the abundance of the water flowing from the temple. But then the emphasis turns in Ezekiel 47 because it says the water runs to Arabah. Arabah is the Dead Sea. And it says this in Ezekiel 47, verse 8. It says, when the water flows into the sea, listen to this, the water will become fresh. Has anybody been to the Dead Sea before? That water is not fresh. This water from the temple flows to the Dead Sea and makes the Dead Sea fresh. The water from the temple, from the throne, will cause that which is dead to come to life. The Dead Sea becomes fresh. The sea that has no fish is now teeming with life. A few verses later in Ezekiel 47, verse 9, it says this. Everything will live where the water goes, where the river goes. Everything will live where the river goes. Oh, friends, everything will live where the river goes. So you, you think about Jesus and him touching a leper. It's not that him touching the leper causes him to have leprosy like it does for everybody else. Jesus touches the leper and the leper's healed, Right? Jesus touches the woman and, and, and she's clean. He's not unclean. Everywhere where the river goes, there is life. The life-giving water of Jesus gives life to where it flows. So we go back to Jesus' words of the woman at, for the woman at the well in John 4, his words at the feast in John 7. There is living water and we must drink deeply. And we see the culmination, the life-giving nature of God, the nourishment of God, the love and care of God for his people. Friends, the river of life just gets deeper and more abundant as you go. The life-giving nature of God brings more life. Death gives way to resurrection. Brokenness gives way to mending. Lethargy gives way to zeal. Full satisfaction in Jesus. That's what we're talking about with this river. It's not just water, it's nourishment, it's provision from God. So where have you seen the living water of God bring life to dead spots in your world? Maybe you had bitterness in your heart and it's been cleansed by the water of life. Or there was suffering that you were struggling with, but now you have new perspectives, whether it's healing or, or contentment or trust in the midst of it because of the water of life. Or maybe you had areas of control in your life, and now you're resting because of the water of life. Just think about the water. And let's think about just a place that you've been where there's abundant water, maybe an ocean, maybe a pool. And imagine you're there with no one around, not a lot of other people, have you ever done this? I love doing this. Like at the pool, if no one's around, and you just sink down. And maybe you're floating, the dead man's float on top or something like that. But like your, your whole face and everything's under the water, and there's just stillness. You're just there. It's you, no one else, except God. 
and you float and you rest and you just are. The living water restores you to just be. We're not human doers, we're human beings. So you can just rest in the water of wholeness and satisfaction in God. And and friends, any wholeness and satisfaction we have right now is merely a foretaste of what we will have at the river of life. Because this river flows from where? The throne of God and the Lamb. There's a source to this river, the throne of God and the Lamb. God's goodness flows to his people. His care, his love, his compassion, his joy bubbles up toward his children. He's a good father who brings his kids into his good, abundant place with perfect relationship that we've always wanted to have. Like a good parent providing food and shelter and clothing and school and vacations, providing both needs and wants to their children. We see the heavenly father providing for his kids. We see Jesus providing for his bride. They love to lavish their people with abundant grace and eternal joy. That's what this is getting at. And now notice where the river is located. It comes from the throne, but then it says it's in the middle of the street of the city. Now, this is probably symbolic here, so we aren't necessarily thinking Venice, though some of us would be like the gondola, like down the street would love that. Maybe that would be awesome. I don't know. Never been to Venice. But we do need to recognize the middle of the street of the city here speaks of the centrality of the throne and the river. There's a centrality to the city. There's a centrality to the focus of everything about the city bride here, that they're with God, the, the nourishment of God. There's a focal point of the, the garden city, the restored Eden, whatever you want to say, is this. It's the good rule of God at the throne, the good rule of God and the nourishment that he gives. God's good rule overflows in blessing to his people. And it is through the Father giving the Son who became the sacrifice for sin. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And then we get the Holy Spirit that gives us life. And life comes from the throne. And life comes from the death and resurrection of Christ. The sending of his Spirit. And what flows from the rule of God is life. What flows from the throne of God is life, life in him for our good and his glory. But it keeps going. The symbolism, the, the narrative keeps going here. Notice what's on, the, on either side of the river, the tree of life. It's the tree of of life. This is amazing. This is the tree in the original Garden of Eden. It is back, giving sustenance to God's people. The, the tree of life continues to emphasize God's good rule and his provision for humanity. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were banned from partaking of the tree of life because eternal life with the corruption of sin is torture. So God kindly bars them from the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to let you have access to the tree of life while death dwells in you. That's called hell. But now the restored saints in the restored Eden 
get access again. They get to partake of the fruit again. And the text says, verse 2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Again, there's some symbolic nature here. For if there's no sun or moon or nights, there's no months to be counted in the same way that we count them. So we don't know how the symbolism works here with sun, moon, nights, and uh, months. So what's the idea of the continual fruit? Here's the, the point, I think, that we need to understand. It is continually harvest time. In the new heavens, new earth, in the Garden of Eden, it's continually harvest time. The curse on the ground is gone. The curse on work is gone. There's no toiling and laboring in the same way we have now. It is harvest time. It is only harvest time. You see, the, this fruitfulness speaks of abundance. God provides for his people. God did not originally create this world with the harsh conditions of toil and pain. No, those came from the curse. It was always meant to be perfect and abundant. Now in Revelation 22, we are back to abundance, back to fruitfulness from the tree, and life is given all year long. Ezekiel 47 it speaks a lot of fruit trees around the river. And it, it's like a grove of trees in this similar picture here. It also says that the leaves are there for the healing of the nations. This healing happens as nations enter into God's fullness and abundant presence. The people of all nations are healed by Christ's death and resurrection, indwelt by the Spirit. The nations are healed as they experience the abundance of the river, the tree, and its fruit. But we must note something. It's the healing of the nations. It's not just the healing of Israel. It's the healing of nations. It's all God's people, every tribe, tongue, language, around the throne of God, swimming in the river, eating the fruit, basking in the glory of the Lamb. So what do these verses tell us? Here's kind of a summary. There is abundant relationship with God that we will experience in the restored Garden of Eden. That's where we're going, friends. Abundant relationship. God's presence, the throne, and God's provision, the river and the tree of life. There's a relationship with God. And here's a major thought, exper not experiment, but let me just say it to you. Relationship with God always leads to worship of God. Relationship with God, a relationship with God, always leads to worship of God. So point number two, life-giving worship of God. Revelation 22, verse 3, look at verse 3. No longer will there be any accursed, anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Full, unhindered worship. No more sin, no more struggling with focus, no more demonic arrows coming at us, no more fleshly thoughts, only full worship of God. Don't you look forward to that? Man, only full worship of God. Just the, the areas, I mean, we worship in all of life. But let me just, 
I just think through how distracted I am. And so I sit down with my, my Bible and my coffee, devotion time in the morning. And man, there are times I'm reading my Bible or praying and like, I don't know how much time goes by, but I just like check back and like, what the heck just happened? Like I was daydreaming and my mind just went off to somewhere or some, some project or something throughout that day. And I'm just like, goodness, stop. Like, Lord, help me focus. Lord, I'm so weak. Help me focus. So I'll usually grab a piece of paper. I fold it in half for some reason. I don't know why I do that. And I, I write like whatever I, like if there's a something, somebody I need a call or an email I need to respond to that I hadn't thought about. I'll like write it and put it over here and then start doing my devotion time again. And then I forgot, put it over there. Like keep it over there. I struggle with focus or a prayer time. I try to pray with my wife as we're heading to bed. And there have literally been times I'm praying with her as we're going to bed. And she's like, honey, I think you fell asleep. Like in the middle of praying, in the middle of praying, like at night, she's like, honey, wake up, wake up. You were praying with me. How bad is it that we struggle with focus in this weakness of our flesh so much? Or we're trying to sing on a Sunday morning. I mean, I'm just aware, man, I did not hit that note. Like we go high, especially when like Robbie Lee is a super high. It's like, it's like, ah! like, oh, miss that note. And I'm starting to focus on my notes that I'm singing instead of the one I'm singing to. Guys, we can live in this distracted world with distracted worship, but there's a time where it will not be distracted anymore. There will be fullness, only fullness of worship. No longer, verse 3 says, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. And then get this, the next part, they will see his face. Do you hear that? We will see his face. We will see the face of God. Our childlike faith will become sight. Our distracted worship will become acutely centered and focused and pure. In Exodus 33, Moses asks God, show me your glory, God. And God says in Exodus 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face face shall not be seen. If you see God's face in your earthly, sin-corrupt body, you die. You cannot handle it, his glory, his holiness. But in Revelation 22, we have glorified bodies. We have full favor with God through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so we will see him face to face. We will have a face to face relationship with God. You know what I think we'll see? I think we'll see a face of compassion and love and tenderness and care. We won't see a face that's disappointed. We won't see an angry face or a dispassionate face. 
No, this is the face of God who loves us and saved us and brought us into his family. And now we're in a forever loving relationship. Picture that face. But friends, that's not just a future face for those of us who are in Christ. This is God's face towards you now. This is his face towards you now. God's heart is compassionate and loving toward his children now. Man, you just see a good dad with like his little kid running around, like a little toddler, and they're like bumbling around and running into chairs and stuff like that. And, and the, the dad's just like, rr, 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 rr. like God's with us. He cares for us. He loves us. And we're that little toddler stumbling around, knocking ourselves in the head. Verse 4 says that we, as we see his face, and he looks at our face, he will see something on us, on our foreheads. It's his marking that we are his. We are marked by his spirit. We've seen in Revelation 6 through 18, God's people were struggling. Some of the saints were under the altar crying, Lord, vindicate us. How long? It says later that they love not their lives unto death. These are a people that are struggling. These are us. This is people between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his next coming. A struggling people. But they are a sealed people. They're a marked people with his spirit. They walk through suffering and struggle and persecution and manipulation. But they are spiritually secure. They are marked. They are not going anywhere. God has them in his hands. And now in Revelation 22, those people are at rest. They're at rest. They see God face to face, and God sees their face, and on their face, on their forehead, and this is probably symbolic. We don't actually have some tattooed across our forehead. The symbolism of we have the Spirit. We are secure. He is ours, and we are his. And so we wade in the water of life. We eat from the tree of life. We have unhindered worship of God. These are the ones in Revelation 14, 4. It's said of them in their earthly life that they're marked of God. Then it says this, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. I just love that little phrase. It just kind of a, almost seems like a sidebar in Revelation 14. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Friends, may, may that be said of you and me. We just, we're just following the lamb. Wherever Jesus goes, wherever our shepherd takes us, that's where we'll go. And now they followed the shepherd to the Garden of Eden. It's amazing. The text continues in verse 5, And the night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's no more night. There's no darkness, no satanic attack, no deceitful schemes, no underhanded ways. There is only light, only truth, only pure motives. And what are God's people doing in this garden city? What they've always been intended to do in the Garden of Eden, reigning. In Genesis chapter 2, 
Adam is told to work and to keep the garden. Those words are important because we start seeing them throughout the Old Testament. The priests are to work and to keep or cultivate and keep the temple. They're, they're to cultivate worship or work on the worship of God's people and keep God's people in the word. God's people are to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion and rule. They're to have a priestly role and a kingly role. And that's not a temporary role. For eternity, we'll be part of the temple bride city in the new creation, and we will be priest kings, worshiping God where we live, work, and play. And we will live, and we will work, and we will play in the new heavens new earth. Living in the new creation, enjoying the abundance, working in our cultivating, keeping, and ruling, and playing as we enjoy a full relationship with God and others. Friends, this is our future abundant life. Let's end today with two implications and two applications. Here's the two implications. First, this will happen. Pretty important implication. This is going to happen. Second implication, your prayers will be answered. Let me give you two specific prayers that will be answered. In Matthew chapter 6, let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this prayer. We read this prayer. We sing this prayer. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will be fully realized. It will happen. His kingdom will come and his will will be done and earth and heaven will be together and we will be in the fullness with our God and Savior. Second prayer, Numbers chapter six. Lord, bless us and keep us. Make your face shine upon us. That will happen. The Lord has blessed us in the new heavens when we're there. He will keep us and he will make his face shine upon us and he will be eternally gracious to us. That will happen. His face, fully face to face, God and man together. Those are two implications. Let me give you two applications. One, keep praying those prayers. For your prayers are going to be answered. His kingdom will come and his face will fully shine on you. And then second application. I mentioned that my wife loves it when I take her to the water on date nights. Friends, let's take our spouses, kids, our friends to the water. Let's take them to the fountain of living water, the word of God, life with God, prayer with God, and let it, let's drink deeply. Let's be a people. Let's be families. Let's be marriages that drink deeply of the Word of God, a love of God. Let's begin that priestly, good, cultivating work of giving the water of life to ourselves and to others. Let's drink deeply. Let's drink deeply deeply. Let's drink deeply and let's let the water flow into every part of our hearts and every part of our lives where there's dry, cracked areas of our lives, where there's parched areas of our lives, where there's good cultivating soil of our lives. Let's let the river flow. 
in all areas of obedience to the Lord. Let's go from unbelief to belief in all areas of our lives. In Psalm 46, verse 4, it says this, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Friends, that's where we're going. Let's prepare now for going there. Christopher, you can come on up. Here's how we're going to end. If everybody can stand. And if you can just keep those points up right there. The life-giving relationship with God.